This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come today and ask you in Jesus' name to use this text to awaken us to the global need and remind us of the singular method of redemption in Christ. We, we thank you for beautiful texts like this that encapsulate the essence of the gospel. Also, these kind of texts who grab the essence of what our heart should be for people outside of the body of Christ. And Lord, I pray that today might be the day of conversion and regeneration for some who would listen to this message or even be in this room today. I pray that you would move people from darkness to light, from death to life. And I pray that you do that through your Son, this one mediator between God and mankind. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last few weeks, I've been listening to a biography on the life of Jonathan Edwards. That season of church history and the seeds of the Great Awakening, the advent of the season of uh, the Puritans and the colonial days are always fascinating to me. And as I've listened, I have found myself often smiling because of the things that are taking place during Edwards' day in the church and in people's lives seem remarkably similar to some of the issues that we face in our own culture. People are people. Churches are churches, whether it's um, 1750, 1950, or 2012. And so I find myself just smiling because we're the same people, just the issues are different. A few highlights are things that I've learned First, there were very significant questions, even in Edwards' own church, on how seeker-sensitive one should be. Edwards' grandfather, uh, Solomon uh, Stoddard, advocated a more seeker-sensitive approach to even baptism and communion. For instance, he advocated that people who didn't necessarily confess Christ as Savior should be able to receive communion or even be baptized in the hopes that these church rites would warm them to faith in Christ. It was called the halfway covenant. As well, there was a controversy during Edward's day regarding church architecture. When the Puritans first landed, they didn't really want churches. They wanted something called meeting houses. And in reaction against the Anglican church, these meeting houses were very plain. There was no steeple. There were no symbols, no cross, no uh, stained glass. And then as more and more immigrants came, 18th century came around, there was more and more desire to be more British, even more Anglican. And that's how steeples became part of the church architecture in New England. In the midst of the Great Awakening, when spiritual revival was beginning to 
um, find its place in New England, there was a growing disconnection between those who were experiencing God's revival and those who weren't. And in particular at Yale College, some students began questioning the spiritual vitality of their professors and those on campus and began even suggesting that some were perhaps hypocritical in their profession of faith in Christ but not really living it out. Well, Yale College trustees would have none of that and therefore they passed a policy that said that no student shall question the spiritual vitality of the professors nor suggest that they are hypocrites. And if such student were to say such things, they would first be warned and then secondly expelled. <laughs> well, David Brainerd apparently missed this memo. Because he said in class and was then expelled that the professor had less grace than a chair. (laughs) See, the reality is, people are people, churches are churches, and the fact of the matter is, is that Solomon was right. There's nothing new under the sun. It's remarkable how history, even church history, tends to repeat itself. And, and this is why we're looking at 1 Timothy, because 1 Timothy as a book helps us here. Because even though this book was written in the first century, even though it was written to a young pastor who was trying to bring reformation to an established church in the city of Ephesus, the, the principles embedded within this book, the concepts, foundational truths of what the church is to be and do are very relevant for us today. And part of the reason is, is that we're People. People are people. Churches are churches, whether it's 1750 or 2012, or whether it's first century. You see, the church of Jesus Christ faces the same enemy, and we face the same devices. The temptations, the challenges, the ditches that we face on either side may have culturally unique expressions, but when you begin to examine them more closely, there's not much new The challenges may seem new to us, but that's often simply because we do not have a very historical perspective on what God has been doing or what the enemy has been doing in the context of church history. So 1 Timothy helps us by giving us information, truths, if you will, as to how we are to behave ourselves in the household of God. Now last week, a few of us looked at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. The rest of you ungodly sinners were at home. And so for the sake of your souls, I will review very briefly what the very godly few learned last week. It was, in all candor, a a phenomenal message. No, it was, in all candor, a, a text that was helping us to be reminded that we ought not to become internally focused. We we need to be external in our perspective. And so Paul calls the church in chapter 2 and verse 1 to pray for all people, to have intercessions and prayers and supplications and thanksgiving be made for all people. He was calling them to come out of their rather exclusive mindset of just this the spiritual needs of their own body apparently that was the issue that timothy was facing it's an important concept for us to remember because we can become internally focused just focused on our own families our own spiritual growth what you learned in an abf class how your small group is going and we can forget the needs of a world around us for which the church has been placed in the world to be salt and light This week in prayer week, we've spent time praying and thinking about the broad expansion of the gospel. It's another reason why I love the fact that at Christmas time, we take a Christmas offering to give money away 
And, and by the way, just to update you, you have given $634,000 for Pakistan. So praise the Lord. Thank you for your generosity. Reaching people outside of the boundaries of this building, reaching people outside of the body of Christ, is really, really important. It's central to our mission. And First Timothy helps us know how we are to think about ourselves and the church of Jesus Christ. Now, our text this morning identifies for us two guardrails of truth. And every church in every generation has always faced these two issues. Let me explain. Every church has to wrestle with this question. What are the boundaries of exclusivity and inclusivity? Meaning, in what situations or in what circumstances should we as a church be very exclusive? Meaning, you can't be a part of our body if you don't believe this. And in what cases should we be incredibly inclusive? And in what relationships should we be exclusive? In what relationships should we be inclusive? How open should we be? How closed should we be? These, these are the questions that Timothy is wrestling with and Paul is trying to help him. And his particular focus in verses 3 and 7 is on the nature of the gospel. In that matter, how inclusive is the gospel? How exclusive is the gospel? That's what he's wrestling with. And friends, that's a really important question. And let me tell you what Paul is going to tell us. What Paul is arguing for here in this passage is for a big-hearted, global-sized vision of the proclamation of the gospel. So being very broad in where we take this gospel and for whom we have heart and love and compassion. And at the same time, he's arguing for a very narrow and limited understanding of what the gospel is. So he's being very exclusive with what the gospel is and very inclusive with where the gospel should go. And the church gets in big time trouble when it inverts these two key ideas, when it becomes inclusive with what the gospel is and when it becomes exclusive with where the gospel should go. So this morning, this text helps us by showing us that the gospel was meant to be universal in scope. And that the gospel was meant to be singular in means. should be proclaimed everywhere. And yet the means of the gospel is singular. One mediator between God and men. So first, let's look at the universal scope. The first guardrail is found in verses 3 and 4. Which calls for a universal perspective on where the gospel should be proclaimed and where our heart should land. Paul is warning the church about being narrow-hearted when it comes to a heart for lost people. Chapter 2 began with a call for big, broad, sweeping, heartfelt prayers. First of all, Paul says that I urge, this is verse 1, that prayers, supplications, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. So this call for broad concern for all people, then he gives us the reason for undergirding it. What is the, what's the theological reason that we would have this broad sweeping concern? And that's found in verse 3, where he says this, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Again, the 
call here is for the church to avoid a parochial mindset that will show up in a lack of prayerful concern for others who are outside of the boundaries of the body of Christ. Their prayers, in other words, should reflect both the heart and the desire of God. So the reason that Paul says that God has this universal scope is because of first his heart and then secondly because of his desire. Let's look at each of these. First, his heart. The question is, how big is God's heart? Well, according to verse 3, it's really big. The church apparently had been guilty of somehow limiting their understanding of God's concern for others. And so Paul wants to make it perfectly clear that the spiritual concern for everyone is what God really loves. In other words, he loves you, but he also loves the world. And the concern would be is that this church was simply thinking of God as our Savior and not the Savior of the world, not thinking broadly big enough, not remembering the kind of text that we know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world. And what's more, God loves it when we love the world like He loves the world. That's why Paul uses two phrases to capture this. The first After talking about these broad sweeping prayers, he says in verse 3, this is good, meaning having a heart like this fits with what God sees as good. This reflects the very heart of God. This is good. It's right. It's fitting. It's what God desires. Secondly, he also says it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, meaning this is what brings happiness and joy to the heart of God. This is what he loves. This is what he longs for when his people reflect what his heart really is. And even though the text says God our Savior, our Savior, we don't have singular possession of him any more than the church at Ephesus did. Therefore, those who love God will want to make him known and will want to make much of him. They will have the same heart as him. And so the heart of God is big, so the heart of God's people ought to be big. It is good and it pleases him. Now the second thing that we see here, not only is the heart of God, but also the desire of God. The will of God. So this external focus not only fits with the heart of God, listen, it also fits with the plan of God. So this global praying is good and it's pleasing because of um, what we learn in verse 4. So, so why is it good? Why is it pleasing? He answers that in verse 4. He says, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, let me just acknowledge to you this morning that this is a tough passage. And it raises what I'll call a biblical antinomy. Are you familiar with the word antinomy? If you have a manuscript, you'll see it misspelled a couple times. A couple places it says antimony. That's when Google took over my computer, okay? So um, don't trust spell check. So antinomy, apparently my computer doesn't know these things that I'm trying to explain to you today. A biblical antinomy is when there are two truths that appear as though they are contradictory and they just exist in the midst of a text or in the midst of the Bible, even though they are not contradictory. So the shorter Oxford English Dictionary defines an antinomy as this, a contradiction between conclusions that seem equally logical reasonable or necessary 
So a contradiction between conclusions that seem equally logical. So two things that seem to make total sense when you put them side by side, they seem to, to contradict each other. Now, J.I. Packer has a wonderful little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And in that book, he addresses theological or biblical antinomies. He writes this. Listen carefully. He actually takes issue with this definition of saying that it is a contradiction. Packer's going to say, it seems like it's a contradiction, but it really isn't. In other words, there are things in the Bible that seem like they conflict with one another, but they only conflict because our minds are so small and they don't really conflict in God's world. This is what he says. For our purposes, the definition is not quite accurate. The opening words should read an appearance of contradiction. For the whole point of an antinomy in theology, at any rate, is that it is not a real contradiction, though it looks like one. It is an apparent incompatibility between two apparent truths. An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stand side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. So I want to help you here. You need to have a place in your understanding of God and His Word Categories in your brain for things that are antinomies, things that just are, that you can't fully reconcile. And no matter how hard you work, you might be able to get them a little closer, but at the end of the day, you can't fully reconcile them. And one of the reasons why you need this category is because when you go through suffering, when you go through suffering, there will be things that will happen in your life, pain beyond belief and divine providence beyond your ability to comprehend. And if you don't have the ability to allow two things just to exist in tension without you understanding all the reasons why, you will never suffer well. The sovereignty of God and the pain of your life, the the providence of God in hard circumstances, you won't be able to fully reconcile everything on this earth. You're not God. And the beauty of this tension is that you simply learn to live with them as they are and just say, I am not God and I'm so grateful you are. This this tension is really, really important. So be careful about trying to find... um, creative or inventive ways of reconciling things that were meant just to be left where they are. In the text before us today, the antinomy is the fact that according to this passage, God desires all people to be saved, but not all people are saved. That's the tension. The text says God desires all people to be saved, but not all are in fact saved. Some people have used this text to teach universalism, that, see, everyone is saved. Or some use this to deny the doctrine of election, that God is not really sovereign over who comes to faith in Christ. The tension that is here is that God desires all people to be saved, but not not all people are actually saved. So I don't think I can fully reconcile these two things, but let me just maybe make them a little bit closer. First, let me help you understand this exegetically. I would suggest to you that when Paul talks about all people, when he says, who desires all people to be saved... It might be that when we hear the phrase, all people, we're not hearing it the way that he intended. Remember that he's writing to a group of people who are being too exclusive, and he wants to remind them about the importance of reaching outside of the boundaries of who and what they are as a church. So when we when we read this text, we read it individualistically, like he's saying, 
all peoples or all individuals. But a very strong case exegetically could be made here that when Paul is saying all people, he means all people groups, all nations, all peoples. And this seems to me to be a really helpful way to bring these things closer for three reasons. First, it seems to fit very well with the tension that existed in the early church during Paul's day, which was between a Jewish group of believers and struggling with the ability to reach out to Gentiles. Previously, it meant that everyone came to Israel in order to be part of God's family. And when the new covenant comes, everything changes. And part of the challenge was how do you think now about salvation outside of the boundaries of national identity? Gentiles are now welcomed in. Secondly, it seems to fit incredibly well as well with Jesus' own command in the Great Commission to go to all nations. What's more, it fits with Paul and what he says in verse 7 regarding his calling to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher to the Gentiles. So it could be that we hear the phrase all and we don't hear it like Paul intended it. And, and come on, you use the word all that way, or you use the phrase everyone, or the, the word everyone. I mean, I, I hear this even as a pastor when someone comes to me and says, everyone's upset about this. And then I ask him, well, how many people? Seven. <laughs> We're all really mad. About how, how, all, what's all? Like nine or 30. And it's, just, it's just interesting how we use that phrase. We, we use it in a pejorative sense and in many respects like Paul does. To so try and make a point. The point that you're trying to make when you say everyone's upset about this is you want someone to hear you, to listen. That, that really, this is a big deal. That's what Paul is, I think, doing here. Now let me also address this and try and get these things closer theologically. I think there's room in our understanding of God's will to distinguish between what God desires and what He actually does. In in this respect, you might think of there being two wills, if you will, in God. And we, we do this in a lot of ways. We talk about God's permissive will, what He allows to happen, and His sovereign will, what He rules over all things. That there is a difference between what God would like to see happen and what He actually wills to happen. In other words, God can have both a desire to see all be saved, but still create a scenario, a real scenario, where not all people are in fact saved. So there can be distinctions or differences or different senses of the meaning of his will. Probably the greatest illustration of this would be even in the crucifixion of Jesus. And I speak about this in a footnote in the manuscript. This is what it says. A great example of this would be the will of God as it relates to the crucifixion of Jesus. God certainly did not condone or desire the sinful actions of Judas and Herod and Pilate or the crowd. Yet Acts 2, on the other hand, tells us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That means that God willed the death of Jesus while not willing the sinful actions of the people involved. God planned the death of His Son while not desiring the sinful actions nor removing the moral culpability of those people who participated. So here we have this tension that exists in the Bible. God genuinely desires all people to be saved, but only saves those who actually believe. Now, one of the best ways to see this tension is to see it right in 1 Timothy. So look at 1 Timothy 4 and verse 10. Here we see the enemy just laid bare for us in this text. 1 Timothy 4.10, Paul summarizing the heart 
And the content of the gospel says this, For to this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God. But here comes the antinomy. Who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. There it is, right there. Who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So my conclusion then that Paul's point here, and this come, let me come back to the reason why he wrote all of this, taking you back out of the depths of sort of our theological and exegetical discussions. The point here is that Paul is talking about the big-heartedness, the loving desire, the will of God. In contrast, remember why he's trying to push against the narrow-minded, hard-hearted, self-focused mindset that this church was apparently embracing. He wants them to realize that God wants everyone to be saved. And he's trying to pull them out of their self-centered perspective. So a right understanding of the gospel. If you get the gospel, it should lead to this broad and universal appeal. Friends, there is something terribly wrong when the church or people in the church become only concerned about their spiritual needs and their spiritual growth. It would seem to me that such a group, such a church, only concerned about their needs, really doesn't understand the content and the beauty of what the gospel is. Well, they might have received Christ, but they need to be reminded of what the gospel is. So this is what you do if today you come, and maybe last week you were here, and or maybe this week you're starting to realize afresh and anew that your heart is too small in terms of your compassion, your heart for the world, for lost people. What do you do? What do you do if your heart is too small? Guilt won't work. That's never worked in your life. It only works for about a week or so. But what do you do if you find yourself living in a Christian ghetto? You know what I mean by that? You have Christian friends and Christian books. You have Christian music, Christian radio station. You have um, Christian activities. What do, you have, what do you do if you just have this Christian bubble that you go to penetrate that bubble, not just to hear a sermon like this, but to penetrate that bubble, you have to rehearse the gospel to yourself. To remind yourselves that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and you are the biggest sinner you know. And rehearse that over and over and over. That then becomes the ground, the motivation, the transformative power to understand what our mission and our purpose in the world is. We need to meditate and marvel on what it means that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So the scope, the scope is supposed to be universal. But the means of atonement is singular. So the second guardrail of truth, so first we have this universal scope. The second guardrail of truth is while the the gospel is to be declared in a universal way, that the means of that gospel creating new life is very exclusive. Paul presents the theological highlights of the atonement in what follows, and he does so in what seems to be some kind of creed or creedal formula. And this great summary is the truth that leads to life. Remember the theme of this book is guard the truth that leads to life? Well, this is the truth that leads to life. Paul begins in verse 5. He says, for there is one God. What's he doing here? Well, in in the Old Testament, we're familiar with this idea of one God. In the Old Testament, the Jews were defined by their understanding of God as one In the midst of a polytheistic culture, God, like Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, the Lord is one God. So that's a familiar concept, but that's not entirely what Paul is saying here. 
what he's saying is carrying on that, that one God motif. He's indicating that there is one God overall. Again, that there is one God over all peoples. He's God over all, thereby even bringing in and making a bridge to this former point of the universality of the scope of the gospel. And then it goes from this big universal oneness to very exclusive terms. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This is an incredibly exclusive statement. So while there is one God over all people, there is only one mediator. That's the contrast. Paul seems to envision this vast sea of humanity over which there is one God who rules over all. And over this vast sea of humanity, there is this one righteous, holy God. And then there's this one mediator that hangs between heaven and earth in order to mediate the vast sea of humanity and the holiness of this one God. Now, this idea of mediator is really important to understand. To be a mediator means that you take two formerly unreconciled parties and you find a way to bring those parties together. The first time we see this historically in biblical theology is in the book of Job in chapter 9, where Job longs to be able to make his case before God, but he knows that he can't. And so he longs for a mediator who he says will lay his hand on us both, meaning him and God. He, he, he envisions a prefigurization of Christ being the mediator between him and his creator. Then we begin to see it in Moses when he takes the law and he mediates it from the top of Mount Sinai down to God's people. And so he becomes a mediator of the law of God. He brings down the law of God. We see it also very explicitly in the role of the high priest who, along with the other priests, would offer sacrifices on a daily basis. But there was one moment in the church or the, uh, the, the national calendar, this one moment when he would mediate for the nation and expiate their sins. He would cleanse their sins for the entire nation on one day, and that day is the Day of Atonement. And on that very special day, he would take a, a bowl of blood and he would go into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place, and only on this day was he allowed to go into that very sacred place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And on this Day of Atonement, he would take blood and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat as atonement between the holiness of God and their people. And this high priest goes in once a year in order to mediate between God and his people. They couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could. So in order for them to have their sins forgiven, in order for the nation to be cleansed, they needed this mediator to go into the holy place and to sprinkle blood in order to cover them. But it only lasted for a year. And so every year after year after year, this high priest goes in, enter Jesus. The fact that 1 Timothy 6, 2, 6 says, the man Christ Jesus is incredibly important. Because what Paul is indicating here is that his mediation will not involve an animal sacrifice, 
His mediation will not involve a repetitive sacrifice. Rather, his mediatorial work will involve a once-for-all sacrifice, and he will not give an animal, he will not give the blood of some other entity, but he will give himself. So he enters the holy place figuratively as both prophet, priest, and king, and the sacrifice that he offers is not the sacrifice of someone else, not the sacrifice of some animal, it is rather his own self he gives. He becomes the sacrifice. He is the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The book of Hebrews chapter 9 gives us a beautiful picture of the significance of this sacrifice. Look at this text. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, Then, through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant it's just beautiful isn't it that Jesus becomes the mediator of this new covenant but there's even more in Hebrews chapter 9 the writer of Hebrews then connects this mediatorial work that produces the new covenant this mediatorial work of Jesus to another act that is the result of this mediatorial work and that is the word redemption or the concept of ransom notice how it shows up in Hebrews 9:15 so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. In other words, Paul and the writer of Hebrews connects the mediatorial work of Jesus and the concept of redemption in showing us the beauty of what it means for Jesus to be the one mediator between God and men. Text continues in 1 Timothy 2. It says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all. To pay a ransom or to redeem somebody, somebody means that a price was paid in order to secure someone's freedom. However, in this case, there's no money that is exchanged. This is, this is the unbelievable beauty of what Jesus did. The ransom that he paid was not a price in order to redeem his people. Jesus doesn't pay the ransom. He becomes the ransom. It's not just that he redeemed you. It's not just that he ransomed you. It is that he took your place. A divine exchange happens. That Jesus takes your punishment so you can receive his freedom. Jesus takes all of your sins so you can receive forgiveness. Jesus appeases the wrath of God and absorbs punishment. And then God declares you to be righteous. And Jesus doesn't just purchase this. He doesn't just secure this. He doesn't just grab this and make it his and yours. He becomes it so that it can then be mediated to you. 
This is why everything that we have and everything we sing about and everything that the Bible is about is about Jesus. Because at the end of the day, one mediator between God and man is everything that we have. Without him, we have nothing. And with him, we have everything. Because he enters the holy place, offers a sacrifice once for all, and becomes the very essence of what that sacrifice is. He becomes the propitiation. That word means to appease, meaning that God, because of our sin, his wrath is poured out and he's disposed towards mankind in a judgment manner because of our sin. But Jesus appeases, he satisfies the wrath of God. In the Bible, that's called propitiation. In the ancient Near East, you would often offer a sacrifice to try and propitiate the gods, to make them happy, to appease them, to satisfy them. And what Jesus does is he becomes the propitiation. Around the first of the year, I read you a quote from D.A. Carson's book on this subject, and this quote bears repeating. Look at it again. In Christian propitiation, God the Father sets forth Jesus as the propitiation to make himself propitious. God is both the subject and the object of propitiation. God is the one who provides the sacrifice precisely as a way of turning aside his own wrath. And here's the sentence that just grabbed me. God the Father is thus the propitiator and the propitiated, and God the Son is the propitiation. In other words, it's all about him. Everything you have, everything you are, Everything you've ever been given is only because of him and through him and by him and to him. Everything is about him, which is why the Apostle Paul says, so where then is boasting? Answer, it's excluded. Jesus gave himself to become the ransom. He becomes the propitiation. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. This statement is incredibly exclusive. This this is what gets Christianity in trouble. And yet this is the essence of what the gospel is. There are not multiple ways to God. There is only one. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Jesus himself, John 14, 6, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So there are not a variety of ways to be forgiven. There are not multiple ways for you to be made right with God. There is nothing that you can do on your own to pay for your sins. Jesus exclusively claims to be the only way to the Father. Paul calls him the one mediator. So while the call for salvation, the universality of the gospel message is meant to go to all people, the message and the content of what that gospel is is incredibly narrow and incredibly exclusive that there is only one mediator. And the reason for this is not because of Christian arrogance. The reason is there's no one else qualified to do this. There's no one else who is both God and man. No one else who lived a sinless life. No one else who hung on a cross between heaven and earth. No one else who mediated between the holy God and sinful people. Nobody else who bore the wrath of God. But Jesus did. 
In the single sacrifice of Jesus, he exclusively makes effective the appeasing of God's wrath, and nothing else will do this. Therefore, friend, your only hope in this life is not the family you were born into. It's it's not the, the, the church rites that you do or did. It's not the the sinful things that you do that are less than other people. Your only hope in life is to receive Christ as your mediator between God and man. And then the amazing way that this text concludes is that it comes full circle after talking about the universal scope of God's heart and then the singular exclusive means of atonement, Paul then again adds the word all, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. In other words, God has opened the floodgates of his grace. Today, there is a mediator between you and God. His name is Jesus, and there is no reason for you not to receive him today. None. So the question then is this, so what in the world should you do in light of this? So let me just help you to know two things. One, the Bible calls you to believe on the name of Jesus. To believe in the name of Jesus means that you stop believing in yourself. That you stop all of the silly attempts to try and justify yourself. You know what I mean? Those silly attempts where you find other people who are worse than you are. You could always find someone who's worse than you. Try all the silly attempts to self-justify, to prove to God why we are the exception to the norm. But the reality is you know and God knows what you've done. And the guilt that you feel is a sign that God is both real and that he's also kind. God loves you enough. Listen, God loves you enough to make you feel bad about violating his law. So believing in Jesus then means that you stop trusting in yourself and you start trusting in Christ. It means that you repent of your sins and you receive Christ as your Lord and Master. It means, in effect, that you are done with you. And you say, I need somebody else, someone else's righteousness, someone else's life, someone else's power to become the internal dwelling reality of who I am. It means that Jesus becomes your Lord and Master. It means that you realize that you have no other way to be right with God. And my guess is you know that you need Jesus. And so here's my question. I'm just going to put this really straight to you. So why in the world would you not receive him now? You might say, well, I'm going to wait till later on in my life. And here's what will happen. You'll hear another message and another message and another message. And you'll become used to messages about the gospel. And the reality is your heart will slowly harden over time. And when the time comes that you think you'd receive Jesus, you won't because your heart will be, your heart will be hardened. Why not receive this one mediator who became your ransom? There's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Secondly, for those of us who've received Christ, you need to hear verse 7. For after talking about these beautiful truths, and aren't they beautiful? Paul then says, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. He's specifically talking about the calling on his life. Now, I'm not suggesting that, you, you, that God's calling you to be a preacher or a teacher. He may. 
But what Paul is doing here is identifying his personal role in the gospel, that he's all in when it comes to the declaration of this gospel, that he's not ashamed of it. And so in light of that, for those of us who've received Christ, let me just ask you a few questions. The first is this, how's your heart? Is it big enough? Do you have an overflowing love for lost people? Is there a sense of burden? Or are you just content with with safe families, happy kids, a good income, a nice home, and freedom and everything that comes with this wonderful culture that can lull us to sleep spiritually? Secondly, what's your motivation? Are you living through the gospel today? Do you see the beauty and the power of what the gospel can do in your life that more than creating affection and love and a heart for people beyond your immediate sphere of influence that the gospel just blows the walls off of it and helps us to think big and have a heart like God. And third, what do you see? My question is this, is your vision big enough? Is it broad enough? Is it expansive enough, global enough, external enough? What is the calling on your life? It's not just ministers that are called by God. You're called by God. And the question is, what is the calling that God has put on your life? You're here in this world to be light. You're here to be the emissary, the ambassador of this good news. And the question is, how does that work and live out in your life? See, the gospel of Jesus Christ was meant to be exclusively effective through Jesus, but inclusively open to all who would come. God is on a mission, and he's using the church to accomplish that mission. And the end game sounds like this from the book of Revelation. Listen. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them all a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is what God is doing. That's his mission. That's his purpose. That's why Jesus came. The end is not just to have you have heaven. The end is for all nations and all people groups and everyone around the world to know that Jesus Christ is King and Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's your calling. That's your mission. That's why you're here. And that's why there is one mediator between God and men, the man. Christ Jesus. Father, help us to have a heart that reflects the beauty of this life-transforming truth. Help us to have a love that gets us outside of our own little Christian bubble. Give us heart. Give us a heart for those near us and those who are very distant. And Father, today I I pray that you would help us to, in rehearsing the gospel to ourselves, know that you came to rescue us and not just rescue us, but to ransom people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And yet, Lord, I also pray that even on this Lord's Day, there's got to be people in this room, people who will hear this message over the Internet, people who watch this video, who today know full well 
that you are calling them to receive this one mediator and to give their heart and life to Christ today. And I pray that by just simply opening their heart to that truth and simply inviting you to be their Lord, that today would be the day of conversion, today the day of repentance, today the day of a radical life change. So empower, I pray, Lord, their eyesight that they might see and believe and be born again. And we thank you for your wonderful word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, friends, before you go, there's folks up here who would love to be able to pray with you. If you've got something going on in your life or you want to talk about some of the things that I talked about this morning, they're here to be able to help you, all right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.